0: All right, in the spring of 1939, the British government commissioned a series of propaganda posters to prepare their country for the threat of war. They wanted to encourage their country for the difficult days they were about to face. The Ministry of, of Information eventually settled on three designs. They were very simple layouts. They had a crown and uh, some text. First two posters had a very victorious tone, and they were widely distributed throughout the country in the fall of 39 when the war began. They encouraged their countrymen to stand up in the face of danger. They simply read, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might. Those were the first two. The third poster was never released. It had a slightly different tone, and so they only intended to release this third poster if Germany made a land invasion on England, and because that never happened third poster was never released. They printed two and a half million copies of it, but the uh, war effort needed recycled paper desperately, so they shipped all the posters to be recycled, and it quietly faded into oblivion. Until the year 2000, when the owners of a secondhand bookstore in northern England were opening a box of books that they had received from an auction, and they found a, like one of the few remaining copies of this poster. It simply read, keep calm and carry on. They liked it so much that they hung it in their office or their bookstore, they framed it and hung it up. Needless to say, this has done quite well for them, (laughs) wouldn't you agree? It's ironic because this is kind of like a, a 20th century relic, it's like an icon of the 20th century and it was never seen in the 20th century. It has found quite a home though in the 21st century. This poster is literally everywhere, everywhere you look, keep calm and something, do whatever you like, keep calm and do that. Um, We even have it in our children's ministry. How many of you have the children's ministry shirt? Keep calm and remember I was made for this. There's literally nothing flashy about the design, simple crown, simple text, and yet modern people find it very compelling, don't we? What is it about this simple layout, this simple shirt that intrigues us so much? I remember the first time I, I came across it, I was like, that's pretty interesting. I like that. What is it that's so compelling to us? Here's a suggestion. I've been thinking on it all week. I feel like most of us realize that life is very fragile. We live in a fragile world. We know that life can change in a second. And we saw that on September 11th, 2001. We woke up. We had breakfast. It was a normal day. And by lunch, we lived in a different world. Everything changed overnight. It just just changed. We know that if something happened this afternoon, our country could be at war tonight. Life is fragile. We don't like to think about that. We'd rather numb ourselves with entertainment and keep ourselves busy than to think, oh, my goodness, things could fall apart quickly. We see Hurricane Patricia come out of nowhere and slam into the coast of Mexico, and we're just wondering, when will it be our turn to pick up the pieces? We know that a a phone call or a knock on the door or a diagnosis could absolutely change our lives in a second. Life is fragile, and I think all of us are very aware of that. What we don't know, however, and what we're not aware of is how we would respond if we do get the phone call, if life does change. How would we handle it? Are we prepared? Would we, would we crumble? Would we fall apart? Would we despair, or we would, would we keep, on, keep calm and carry on, keep pressing on? Maybe some of you came in this room this morning, and your life has fallen apart, and you, your life has been turned inside out, and you're trying to pick up the pieces, and maybe you're looking for ways to respond to that, or maybe you just need encouragement to keep responding well, to keep having faith. Fortunately, that's the, third, that's the question that Habakkuk is answering in the third and final chapter of his short prophecy. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. The question that Habakkuk will answer really in the whole book but specifically in this third chapter is, how should the people of God respond to tragedy? How should we respond to adversity? And so if you have your Bible, make your way there. It'll take you a while if you just try to find it on your own. If you go to Mark and go back six books, you'll find it. That's the easiest way. Pastor Scott is on the second leg of his two-week vacation, so we've taken a brief break from the study of Mark's gospel to study this minor prophet in Habakkuk. So, Make your way there and go to the third chapter. As you're uh, turning there, let me try to summarize the first two chapters. If you weren't here last week, you'll need to know what happened in the first two chapters to get a good idea of how to process and interpret the third chapter. The first two chapters are essentially a four part conversation between God and Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk is a frustrated man because he's living in a very sinful and perverted country. And he wants God to do something about it. So the book begins with this lament. God, where are you? How long? How long, O Lord, will you make me put up with this? Aren't you going to do anything about it? Second part of the conversation, God says, of course. Of course I'm going to do something about it. I I see, I hear the injustices, and I have a brilliant plan. You ready? Babylon is coming to destroy you. That's not cool. (laughs) Habakkuk did not like that. So the third part of the outline of last week that we looked at, Habakkuk says, time out, that's not right. You're a holy God. You are pure. How can you let a very wicked nation judge a kind of wicked nation? We're just kind of wicked. We're not that wicked yet. That was his his complaint at the end of chapter one. And so he climbs up onto the watchtower to wait for God's response. It was a lot of theological tension, and he's waiting for God. God will reassure him in chapter two. And his transfer, his response will absolutely transform this frustrated prophet. Key verse in this entire book, and as some have even said, the entire Bible is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk's worried about God's plan, and God says, Habakkuk, don't worry about Babylon. They're wicked. They are under my wrath. You cannot build a sustainable life of injustice on this planet. I will not let it happen. Justice is woven into the fabric of our universe. Don't worry about the wicked. Don't worry about, the ba- about Babylon. They will consume themselves. But as for you, you will live by your faith. Renounce your own resources. Renounce your strength and turn to God in faith. And that response absolutely transformed Habakkuk. He was a new man. Nothing else had changed. Think about that. He was still living in a perverted country, and Babylon was sharpening their swords as he spoke. Nothing had changed, and yet here we come to Habakkuk chapter 3, and he's a new man. He had faith. He was ready to to face the worst. He was prepared for adversity. And so in chapter 3, he penned one of the greatest statements of faith that our world has ever known, simply beautiful and astounding. How do the people of God prepare for adversity? This is how. He's going to explain in vivid detail in chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. It's a little bit longer, so buckle up for this one. It's, it's 19 verses, um, but it's a beautiful and stunning prayer. Let's read it together. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. His rays, rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O oh Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and wreathed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high the sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the heads of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, Thank you for your word, God. May it speak to us in a fresh way this morning. We need to hear this text today. I pray that our hearts are open now to respond to your word, to receive it with joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is a long prayer, a very long prayer, and it's a little hard to follow, so let me break it up. As far as I can see, there are three movements. He's concerned with the past, the present, and the future in this, in this prayer. He's going to start with the present. begin by asking God to work in his own day like he had in the past. Then he's going to move to the past. Because of this, he's going to remember God's work in the past, and in light of God's actions in the past, he's going to look to the future and rejoice in God no matter what happened. So here's the outline. Habakkuk requested for God to work in his own day, verses 1 to 2. Habakkuk remembered God's work in the past, verses 3 to 15, and Habakkuk rejoiced in God regardless of the future. I promise I didn't look for R's. They just came. <laughs> so three R's. Habakkuk requested. He remembered. He rejoiced. It's a bold prayer. It's historically informed, and it shows us to have faith in the midst of calamity. So let's dig in. Let's start with Habakkuk's request for God to work in his own day. The first section in verse 1, if you look at verse 1, it says, The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, We're trained to buzz right past these. We see that inscription and we're like, all right, let's get to the meat. Let's get to the good stuff. But actually, this is pretty key to our interpretation. Here's why. We're told it's a prayer. Do you remember how the whole book started? Look at Habakkuk 1 verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk saw, that's also translated burden. I said that last week. The burden of Habakkuk the prophet. He was a frustrated man last week. And I suggested last week that lament is an entirely appropriate way for the people of God to come to God. We can lament like Habakkuk did. If you have a burden, if you have tears, you can bring it to God. That's what Habakkuk did. The scriptures invite us to lament and to cry out, how long, oh God? Why is it like this? But I, I suppose I should follow that train of thought a little bit. You should know that almost every lament in the Bible turns. Start with lament and they almost always end with Praise there's a transformation that happens when the people of God lament. There is a time to lament and cry out to God. And there's a time to, at the end of chapter two, sit quietly and wait. And at the beginning of chapter three, there's a time to pray and rejoice and thank God. He begins this book with a burden, but he ends with a prayer. This is Habakkuk's journey from frustration to faith. And so we get to Habakkuk three, we find out this is a new man. Second it's important because it was written according to shigayanoth and you're like really that's important <laughs> kind of yes now we don't really know what a shigayanoth is and i don't even know if i'm saying that right so you can say objection if i'm saying it wrong but we do know that it's some sort of a musical notation it's also in psalm 7 and it's we know that it's a song because throughout there's musical notation selah is throughout the poem and at the end it's written for the choir director on the strings on the strings. You got that? So it's written for the choir master. This is significant. It's written like a psalm, isn't it? It's written like a song. This is significant because it shows us that Habakkuk is not simply journaling to himself. He's not writing out his own statement of faith. He's writing out our statement of faith. He's writing corporate worship here. He's giving the people of God something to hold on to as they make their way to Babylon. He's giving them a song to sing. This is a brilliant strategy because you know very well that music has a way of getting into your bones. You ever have those days where you just sing a song over and over and over and you're like, I just gotta go buy that on iTunes now. I gotta gotta listen to that song. Music has a way of getting into our soul and changing us and moving us in a way that sentences can't. That's why we gather every week to sing and to retell the story of God with our voices and kind of tap our feet and move a little bit because it gets into our souls. Music does. One, one, One author said that Music has a privileged channel into our imaginations. I love that. And so he's writing this song to give to his people as they walk to Babylon and as they live in a foreign country for 70 years. Unfortunately, we've lost the tune. I would have loved to have heard the tune of this song, but we do have the lyrics. And so when he begins to pray and when he begins to compose this prayer, he's gonna ask for two things for his current generation. Here here they are. First, he wants God to act again like he did in the past. He wants God to show up. In the midst of the years, revive your work, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. Work again. What a great prayer. God, we've heard the stories, and we know, and we believe that you have done great things for your people. And here we are in a mess, and we need you now more than ever. We've heard the stories. We'd like to experience the stories. Revive your works. What a great prayer. Habakkuk is inviting us. This is corporate worship. He's inviting the people of God to pray this prayer. Do you pray that? God, show up, please. We know who you are. We know that you're good. Revive your works. Make them known again. But you have to notice that as soon as he prays this prayer, and as you pray this prayer, make sure that you follow it with what Habakkuk followed it with. In wrath, remember mercy. He's inviting God to come back like he has in the past, but he knows that when God shows up, God always shows up in wrath. He comes in justice because we're a sinful people. We're perverted. We can't stand before a powerful and a holy God. And Habakkuk knew that, and so he says, come, revive your works again, and when you come, remember mercy. Please be merciful to us. We need you now more than ever, but when you come, be gentle spare us. Modern Christians want to take away the wrath of God. It's an impulse that we've been fighting for a long time. Actually, it was the first lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. You will not die. We've been trying to take away the wrath of God ever since. I understand that impulse to take away the wrath of God. We don't love this doctrine. I'm sure Habakkuk didn't love it, but at least he acknowledged it. And as he acknowledged it, he could pray, in wrath, remember mercy. Remember mercy. We know that you're holy, and we know that we cannot stand in your presence, but would you be merciful to us? If you can't say that prayer, in wrath, remember mercy, you'll never understand the gospel. That prayer is the key to understanding the gospel. Lord, you are holy, and we're not. Be merciful. You see, on Good Friday, God came in all of his wrath. But in mercy, he put all of his wrath on the head of his beloved son, Jesus, instead of us. The cross is where God's wrath and mercy met. In wrath he came, but in mercy he spared us. Let's pray that prayer. This leads to the second point in our outline. He's just looked looked back. No, he's just prayed for God to move in his own day like he had in previous generations. And so now in verses three to 15, he's gonna turn back and look at how God has saved his people in the past and how in wrath he has remembered mercy and spared his people. And so this is the bulk of the the chapter. He's gonna reanimate the previous works of God in verses three to 15 in stunning poetry. But I'll be honest, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? When we read through it, it's, it's a little bit easy to, to lose your place in the story. What's happening here? Who's he referring to? When did this happen? I don't remember that. It's, it's a little bit foggy. The picture he paints of God is a little bit unfamiliar to modern minds. God's riding on the cloud. He's coming down and splitting the earth. We're, we're just not used to talking about God like that. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. I'm not going to read the entire text, but let's just get a feel for it. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. What's he doing here? What is he trying to do? Whenever I've read Habakkuk 3 in the past, this passage seemed a little bit obscure. The first two verses, what we just covered, I love those. The last three, some of my favorite in the entire Bible. But what is 3 to 15, what's happening here? They seem a little out of place. Here's what's going on. Habakkuk is describing the Exodus and the Canaanite conquest. There's little clues that kind of tip us off, the plagues and pestilence, the sun and the moon standing still. There's little tips in there that kind of show us what he's getting at. But it's hard to follow because he's not really retelling the story. He's re-singing the song. Let me explain that. That's kind of confusing. The Israelites had this tradition. Whenever God would deliver them, let's say in Exodus 14, God delivers them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Do you know what happens in Exodus 15? Moses turned around and he sang the song about it. He gave this breathtaking picture of God in theological terms. In Judges 4, Deborah will come into Canaan and she will defeat the Canaanites miraculously. But in Judges 5, She wants to give the Israelites no doubt what was actually happening. God came in glory. It was God that delivered us. It was God that spared us. All throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 18, there's these triumphant, victorious psalms that celebrate God's past, God's action. Let me read two. Deuteronomy 33, this entire chapter. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sierra upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran, He came from 10,000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And the chapter will continue this victory march from the south. Judges 5, this is Deborah's song. Lord, when you went out from Seir and when you marched from the regions of Eden, also in the south, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And so when Habakkuk began his poem poem with these words, God came from Taman and from Mount Paran he came, his audience would have known. He's singing the victory march this beautiful triumphant march from the south that the Israelites constantly tapped into and constantly sang. Habakkuk is singing that song. This leads to the question, why? Let's bring, let's bring ourselves back to Habakkuk's situation. The Israelites sang these songs after a victory. Habakkuk had not won anything. In fact, he's on the brink of Humiliation. He's on the brink of one of the darkest days in his country's existence. Babylon was preparing their battle from the north, their victory march from the north. Why is he singing of God's victory march from the south? How could he sing this here? We get a clue of his motivation in verse 13. God has come and he's crushing the earth. He's crushing the nations. Everybody is in in fear and awe of him. But then in verse 13, it says this. gives us the reason why God has come. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. How did Israel escape Egypt? God delivered them. How did the Israelites defeat Canaan? God delivered them. God handed them over. And and, and throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites sang these victory songs. It was God that did it. It was God that did it. He comes out for the salvation of his chosen. And in the midst of this dark day, Habakkuk renews his faith by remembering God's previous actions. You have come for the salvation of your people. You'll do it again. I trust you. This leads us to the third part of his outline. He's renewed in this moment. He comes out of this vision, and in verse 16, he will look to the future and give us some stunning, remarkable language of what's happening now. Go to 16. At this moment, he's deeply shaken. He's had this tremendous vision of God, and he's considered the awesome works of God in the past, how he brought them out of Egypt and brought them into Canaan. The sun and the moon stood still, he'd split the earth and shaken the nations, and he was terrified. It's shaking him up. Listen to him in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This vision that Habakkuk had just seen of God made him sick. Like his lips were shaking and his bones turned to jelly. His legs failed him. He's crumpled on the ground. Why did he have this reaction? Because he saw God's power and it made him tremble. This is what the fear of the Lord looks like. The fear of the Lord. At beginning of, uh, in verse two, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and I fear. This is what it means to fear God. Your body trembles, your lips quiver, your bones turn to mush in front of the presence of almighty God. Again, we're quick to just we're we're quick to take the sting out of that phrase. What does it mean to fear the Lord? You just have to have a reverent respect. That's all he needs. No, if you experience God and all of His holiness and all of His power, your bones turn to jelly. Like you lose control of your body. That's what the fear of the Lord means. When the biblical authors spoke of the fear of God, this is what they said: they lost it. They lost control. And so in verse 16, he's shaking at the reality of God's power and of God's holiness, that this same God that split the earth has come for the salvation of his people, and he's terrified. He's fearing God, and I'm convinced that this is the key to his faith. The fear of God fueled Habakkuk's faith. Because when he comes back to reality, did you notice how he spoke of Babylon? I'll just wait for judgment to come on our invaders. I'll just patiently wait here for God to judge the country that's coming to invade us. Calm and reassuring. It's like, wait a minute, Habakkuk, read chapter one. Listen to God's description of Babylon. They are faster than leopards. They're fiercer than the evening wolves. They will have no mercy. They will come into your city. They will kill you and take a few of you away and move on. Yeah, but God shakes the earth with a look. He makes the eternal hills tremble. Babylon is not as frightening. I've lived in the mountains most of my life, but I've never made it to Wiseman's View until this weekend, and I don't know how. If you've not been, it's worth the drive. You walk out into this little path, and and there's plenty of spectacular views. There's something about this view, though. You're hemmed in by Table Rock and by Hawksbill. And it's a beautiful view. And these figures are imposing, and it makes you feel really small and really insignificant to think that these two figures in that gorge have been imposing themselves on our landscape for centuries and centuries and centuries. Long before I was here, those monuments have stood there looking over the mountains. And as I was considering these and worshiping the Lord, I took in Habakkuk's words. They came to mind. God stood and he looked at the earth. He looked and shook the nations. He looked at the nations and they shook. The everlasting mountains were scattered. Can you imagine Table Rock just running at the sight of God? The everlasting hills sank low. Hawksbill just cowering in fear. God's ways were the everlasting ways. With a look, God can melt the hills. And that moment, as I'm staring at these mountains, God felt really big, that God can shake these with a look. And in contrast, our problems felt really small. At that moment, ISIS, they didn't seem as horrible to me. What power do they have? Literally, what powers does ISIS have? What what power does cancer have? Does our enemies have? What power do they have? I think this is behind Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 10. Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. The worst they can do to you is kill you. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Habakkuk was experiencing this in chapter 3. He feared God and this fueled his faith. And this prepared him to look into the future and make this breathtaking statement of faith. Listen to it again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Can you imagine a stronger statement of faith? Does it get any more profound than that? Even if I lose everything, I will trust in God. He is my joy. He is my salvation. He is my strength. I will trust in him. You don't need me to tell you this, but Habakkuk was living in an agrarian society. And so what he is saying, he's looking out, scanning the fields, and they are just devoured. He looks in the barn, abandoned. There's no noise, no joy. Everything has been stripped. Stock market crashes. The grocery stores run out of food. Your house forecloses. You lose your job. Gas stations run out of gas. You get the phone call. You get the diagnosis. I will rejoice in God. How could he have joy here? Like, don't we just want Habakkuk to say, just keep calm and carry on. That's sufficient. (laughs) Just keep being steady. That's all you need. Everything's falling apart. We don't expect you to have joy. We just expect you to keep your head above water and keep going. No, Habakkuk has joy. How could he dance on the heights like a deer? He was in a treacherous time of life and he's dancing on the heights. Babylon is breathing down their neck and he's dancing on the heights. How? Because joy is the fruit of faith. When you have faith in God and fear God alone, you will inevitably be joyful. God will produce joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's an inevitable response when you walk with the Spirit and you fear God and you have faith in Him. We have nothing left to fear when our faith is in the one who shakes the hills. One of the reasons I think that we have a hard time praying this and making this our own prayer it seems a little bit too much for us, is because that we've learned and been conditioned to place our faith in results instead of in God. Habakkuk says, my joy, my strength, my salvation is in God. It's not in results. It's in God. If you or a loved one have ever suffered through cancer or another terminal illness, you know how easy it is to place your faith in results. If the MRI comes back good, we have faith it comes back bad, we need more faith. I've been there. We, we've done this. It's a roller coaster ride, and if you're trying to put your faith in results, you're going to go all over the board, tossed back and forth. This text is not inviting us to place faith in results. It's inviting us to place faith in God. Life is far too fragile for us to put our faith in results. Far too fragile. Besides, that's not what our world is looking for. That's not a compelling testimony. You know, I had nothing before Jesus. Jesus saves me, and look at my life now. Look at how much I've got. Look how healthy I am. The world can get healthy and wealthy without God just fine. They don't need to look to us for our health and wealth. What they need to do is look to us when our health and wealth disappear and falls away. They need to look to a people that say, I rejoice in God. He's my joy. That's what we need, and that's what our world craves. Imagine there's some of you that came in here that are craving that kind of joy, that kind of faith. How? I want to invite you to do exactly what Habakkuk did. Look to the past. Now, in Habakkuk's time period, he looked to the exodus. That was his landmark. God has redeemed his people. I know he'll do it again. He's holding on to the exodus. Brothers and sisters, we get to hold on to the resurrection We get to hold on to the resurrection. If you are craving that kind of faith, look to the resurrection. This is not the end. The empty grave can give you the strength to face anything imaginable. What if our nation crumbles? Literally, what if I can't get gas? That'll keep you up and having having panic attacks. What if I can't get gas? This is not my home. I'm a citizen of another country and thank God the resurrection will get me there. What if we get the phone call or the diagnosis or the knock on the door and everything crumbles because we've lost what we cannot lose? What will get us through? The hope of the resurrection. This is not the end. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who controls it all. The hope of the resurrection enables us to skip through the most difficult days like a deer skipping through the heights. What a beautiful image. Let's stand in prayer. We're going to close our time here together and pray through Romans 8. We heard it at the beginning. The word of God is the only thing that has the power to move us this morning, and so we're going to listen to it again. Romans 8, verse 35, and I'm convinced this is the New Testament version of Habakkuk's prayer. Paul is summarizing his entire gospel message, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Maybe famine? Maybe you don't have any food. Surely that will separate us from the love of Christ. Nakedness? What about danger? A sword? No. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are much more more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We put our hope in you right now, in Christ's name, amen.